Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston. Today we're privileged to hear from the former Chief Justice of the Utah Supreme Court, Christine Durham. I think you'll be enthralled by her presentation. And please remember that Dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. You can visit us at dialoguejournal.com to make an online contribution. Thank you for your support. And now to our podcast featuring Justice Durham speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Well, our speaker tonight is Justice Christine M. Durham, a member of the Utah Supreme Court, former Chief Justice of that court. Don and I first met Christine and her husband George when we arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts almost 50 years ago. I was there to study law. Don, only a couple of months past her teenage years, <laughs> and that is true, was secretary to a young Harvard law professor named Alan Dershowitz. George Durham was finishing up his undergraduate studies at Harvard. Christine had just graduated from Wellesley College and was set to enroll at Boston College Law School. And we all attended the student ward that met in the chapel on Longfellow Park in Cambridge. There were lots of interesting people in our ward. Jamie Lyon was our bishop, a professor of German at Harvard and son of one of Mormonism's outstanding scholars, T. Edgar Lyon. Our second bishop was Richard Bushman, who you all know. The Boston Mission Home was just around the corner from the church, and Truman Madsen was the mission president. Uh, he was replaced the next year by Boyd K. Packer. Are you dropping names? I'm dropping some names here, and I'm dropping names for a purpose because although George Durham was just an undergraduate, kind of a snotty-nosed kid, I considered him to be somewhat of a celebrity because his father was G. Homer Durham, then president of Arizona State University, and his grandfather on his mother's side was the brilliant professor and apostle John A. Whitsoe. In contrast to George, who had royal Mormon roots, Christine, like me, didn't necessarily. Her father was a convert to the church. Her mother's family had dropped away from the church, and none of her grandparents attended college. However, both her parents had become active in the church after her father joined, and they put a strong emphasis on education. When Christine was a teenager, her father was posted to the U.S. Embassy in Paris, where the family lived for several years, and so Christine went to French schools and was immersed in the language. When it came time to go to college, she was thrilled to be accepted into Wellesley, which was one of the most prestigious schools in America. Her father was disappointed she didn't choose to go to BYU. Christine and George left Cambridge the year after we arrived when he was accepted at Duke Medical School and she was accepted at Duke Law School, where she graduated in 1973. Since that, 71? He was yeah, 73. I, I'm 73. He was slower okay. than I was. Okay. She quickly graduated in 1973 and then helped support her husband through the rest of his school. Since that time, Justice Durham has assembled an astounding list of accomplishments, and I'll just name a few. She was chair of the Utah Judicial Council for a decade. She's been a member of the Board of Trustees of Duke University, president of the Conference of Chief Justices of the United States, 
President of the American Bar Association's Council on Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar, President of the National Association of Women Judges, Adjunct Professor at the University of Utah College of Law, has received honorary degrees from four Utah universities. In 2007, she received the William Rehnquist Award for Judicial Excellence. In 2008, she received the Transparent Courthouse Award for contributions to judicial accountability and administration. Justice Durham has now been married for 15 years to George, who is a retired pediatrician and serves as state patriarch. They have five children and seven, she says, fabulous grandchildren. I've got to put them up against mine to make sure that's true. Christine has been a teacher and a leader in the Young Women's Program, Sunday School, and Relief Society. Now, when Christine and I attended law school, it was a rare thing to see a woman there. Most law professors taught using the Socratic method. They had a seating chart and would point at random to a particular student on the chart and ask them to expound on a particular legal topic or case. One of my professors still had one day a year that he called Ladies' Day, when he only called on women and only they could answer. It was kind of awkward for everyone to have them put into that special category. In those days, the few women who went to law school were expected to go into fields like family law or probate law. Christine broke that mold, and I'm interested to hear how she did it. So I'm honored now to turn the floor over to Christine. Thank you so much, Morris, for that uh, generous introduction. Uh, and thanks very much to the Thurstons for all the work for hosting this event. I understand that if we went to the Institute at Fullerton State, I might have to be more careful about what I say. So, <laughs> so this is good. Uh, and uh, I'm just delighted to see some Utah friends. The, we go way back with the Wixoms. Uh, my husband helped take care of their children, and they, were, they knew his parents and were so kind to his mother for so many years. And it was a pleasure to walk in and see my colleague from the Utah Judiciary, Claudia Laycock here. She apparently didn't know I was coming, and I didn't know she was coming, so we were, we were both surprised. I'm delighted at this invitation. Uh, it seems to me that each one of us is very much a product of our experience. The, the lives that we build up around uh, ourselves are built out of bricks that come from the people we meet, the circumstances in which we grow up, the kinds of experiences we have. And I, I'm, I appreciate the chance. George and I call this an examining your navel kind of opportunity where you get to come and talk about your experiences in your life and uh, w with, the hope, with the hope of providing some insight into how you um, get to be who you are. It, is, it, it was interesting, a, a few of us with the Thurstons had dinner before we came tonight and I think there were five or six of us at the table out of 10 or 12 who had all attended the dedication of the Los Angeles Temple uh, in, when was that, 1956, I was going to say 57. So I'm an Angelino. Uh, my, my, um, as Morris mentioned, my father was a convert to the church. He actually, uh, he worked for the Internal Revenue Service, that's, he was, he went to school on the GI Bill after World War II and he, he got a job clerking for the IRS and then when um, he uh, finished school he went to work for them and he audited a Mormon bishop on one occasion 
And unbeknownst to him, the Mormon bishop gave his name to the missionaries who showed up, who showed up on our, that's one way to get back at the IRS, right? <laughs> who showed up at our door. My father was a genial, gregarious man. He invited them in. And as, as Morris mentioned, my mother's family uh, had, in fact, um, been Mormons way back. They used to say that they, they got to Utah and kept on going to the Promised Land and landed in California, in Southern California. Uh, but she had not been active in the church since she was a child. So in those days, the missionaries were extremely persistent. They came back, they taught my father for two years before he finally got around to joining the church. But when, when he came into the church, uh, it, it very much, it, it became a, a pillar of his life in terms of who he was and what he care, cared about. And my mother uh, came back into fellowship in the church and so I was raised both out of the church I was uh, almost eight years old when he joined the church so I remember the days uh, before and then after um, the influence of the church in our lives in fact there's a famous picture in our family of my dad in his big leather chair with a cigarette in one hand and a can of beer in the other that we children used to cherish that was before that was before his um, his decision to accept the gospel so I really had a, a, a close-up view, although as a child you're not necessarily paying close attention, but I saw the ways in which uh, their lives in the church and their commitment to the gospel really transformed my family. They'd always, they'd always had real commitment to um, educational values and hard work, and they were very good people, but I think the gospel gave them the energy and the impetus to perform service at levels that you never would have expected. I mean, they went on to live in Europe for five years, in France, in South America for almost 11 years, in different countries. They learned French, Spanish, Portuguese. They served in church um, callings throughout those periods of their lives. Uh, with enormous dedication, they went on two separate missions after they retired from the government. All of their children eventually ended up marrying Utahns. This happens sometimes to Mormons. And so they ended up retiring uh, in Utah, which was an interesting experience uh, for them. I think, you know, we, we were California Mormons, and then I lived in Arlington, Virginia, outside of Washington for three years, and then France. And I detected, even as a young girl and early teenager, you, you referred to Mormon royalty, <laughs> and you kind of encountered that. And in that era in Washington, D.C., it was kind of prevalent. And I, of course, managed to develop a big chip on my shoulder. And it's true that when I went to Wellesley and went to institute classes, I met this lovely young man who I thought was really cute and was quite interested in. And I came to institute one day, and Truman Madsen held up a copy of The Improvement Era, with his picture on the cover, because he had just chaired the year before coming to Harvard, he just chaired the first LDS-sponsored Explorer Conference, International Explorer Conference, at Brigham Young University. And so I thought, hmm, and then Truman went on to sort of outline his antecedents, and I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> but, but it worked out nonetheless. We've been married for 50 years this past December. Uh, having met as young first-year students in Cambridge. 
As has been mentioned in the introduction, uh, we, we launched our career together. We've, we've, on several occasions over the years, looked back on crossroads and decisions that we made, most of them pretty deliberate, such as the decision to have our first child after we'd been married a year. Neither one of us had uh, finished our educations. Uh, I don't know what we were thinking. We cannot reconstruct what we were thinking. But we'd been married a year, and we thought, you know, it was time to have a baby, so we had a baby. I started law school two weeks later. Uh, you know, it was absolutely nuts. And you mentioned Jamie Lyon. Uh, Jamie holds a special place in my heart for many reasons. He was our bishop in the Cambridge Ward. And I remember calling him. This I had started at Boston College because George was still an undergraduate at Harvard. And I called up Jamie and I said, I'm exhausted. I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, is, is this all right? Is it all right for me to be doing the newborn child, the law school, the whole thing? And he said, he said, is the baby gaining weight? And I said, oh yeah, she's, she's a fat little thing. He said, do you like law school? And I said, I love law school. I'm really enjoying the intellectual stimulation of fellow, fellow students. And I've forgotten whether there was another question. Might have been about you, but I'm not sure. I think he was more concerned about the baby in law school. Uh, but at the end of the conversation, he said, you'll be fine. He said, if you are enjoying what you're doing and your child is getting what she needs, you'll be fine. And that gave me the support and the uh, confidence to, to proceed with what we were doing. We had a family motto at the time, which was, if there's a harder way to do it, we'll find it. And, and we did. Uh, we, we continued with our education. We had another child two years later. She was born my third year of law school. So by the time we graduated uh, from medical school and law school at Duke, I finished in 71, George in 73. We had two small children. Uh, the second one was born while she was enrolled in labor. Law. That's right. I was taking labor law my third year of law school. <laughs> out to here, the professor could not resist. Let me tell you. I, as far as I know, I think I'm the first woman ever to have been pregnant at the Duke Law School. I don't. I don't. I, I've done some research, and nobody's ever identified for me. There were few enough of us as it was. So I attended law school. There were only five women in my class. And uh, it was, the, the world in which I emerged into the law was a very different world from the one that we know today. Uh, for example, there were law firms at Duke Law School in the late 60s, early 70s, who flat out, they wouldn't, they wouldn't interview anyone who was not on law review, and they wouldn't interview women. So they'd come and use the law school facilities, but they would not interview women. And there were others who would interview women, but they would ask you what form of contraceptive you were using to make sure that you weren't going to get pregnant on their watch. Of course, in my case, that was kind of ridiculous, <laughs> since I already had two. Um, so, it, and in fact, because I was uh, required to stay in Durham, North Carolina with my uh, family while George finished medical school, there was not at that point in time a, a law firm in Raleigh-Durham or Chapel Hill that would even interview a woman. There were a couple of women practicing with brothers or fathers in family firms. 
Uh, so it, it was incumbent on me to find a number of part-time jobs and sort of patch together uh, opportunities. And you know, at the time that felt, that felt very burdensome and didn't feel particularly fair, but you do what you have to do. And I also have to say that it was, and so I'm looking around the room and some of you are of an age to recall a world in which these things were accepted. Uh, these things were in the water. Uh, people simply did not expect, Morris was talking about what was expected of the women who did make it to law school. You were expected to occupy a particular niche in society and if you managed to get yourself into uh, professional training, at least to stay at the edges of that. Uh, and I can remember I was one of the most transformative event, events actually of my law school educational life was that we had no female faculty, no female administration, but by the time I was a third year student there were probably about 15 women in the entire law school. We organized ourselves and we went to the administration and said, uh, will you give us some money to put together a course of study on women in the law? This was in 1970-71, so uh, th there were no textbooks at the time, but there was a young woman law professor up at Rutgers University who was putting together a textbook on sex discrimination and the law. Her name was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, and she had the uh, notes and outlines for what was later to become the first textbook on sex discrimination in the law, which she was willing to share with us. And with the money we got from the administration, we flew her down from Rutgers and had her come to our seminar and talk to us about the work that she was doing, not only in her teaching and her research, but in her litigation. Uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court on gender discrimination issues. This is, this is our youngest daughter who knows we're out of town. She has Down syndrome and she likes to keep tabs on us. So, sorry about the interruption. Uh, and I, I was really, that for me, that was the first time that I began to see this issue of gender equality in, in a, a systemic way, in a systematic way, and to understand that it, it wasn't just something that, you ex that one experienced personally, that I experienced personally, or others I knew experienced personally, that it was in fact a, a society-wide issue, uh, an issue which affected American institutions pretty profoundly across the board. So simultaneously with that experience, the Congress uh, had passed, had approved the Equal Rights Amendment to the Federal Constitution and we studied, we studied the congressional debates and we studied what little legal literature there was. And shortly after I graduated from law school, the North Carolina Legal Secretaries Association asked me to come and talk to them about the Equal Rights Amendment. So I did even more research and went and gave a talk and decided this was a very good thing to happen. So I spent the next two years lobbying the North Carolina legislature. This was, by the way, before the church decided that this was a moral issue they were opposed to. So, you know, I was, I was just a free agent at the time. Um, apparently an immoral one. Apparently <laughs> an immoral one, exactly. Uh, and so I had the experience, a two-year experience of lobbying 
for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment and again in that process became increasingly uh, familiar with the ways in which gender uh, inequality and gender discrimination had an impact on so many institutions uh, in the United States and, and, and the degree to which it affected employment opportunities, educational opportunities, things like you know accessibility to credit and loans. You all remember the era when you couldn't get your own credit as a married woman. You had to have your husband sign on all of your credit applications. Um, I learned about the history of gender discrimination in the law, the fact that women for centuries were considered not not full human beings in the legal sense, but rather uh, as having to <coughs> exist in a legal sense derivatively from their fathers and their husbands, uh, which left single women in a pretty pickle. Uh, so I became more and more enmeshed in that effort, and when we moved to Utah in 1973, uh, although by that, actually I'm not sure how far the church had still engaged itself. It was still, it was, they, they were still sort of figuring out what they were doing, and I just launched into the ratification effort here in Utah. In fact, I spoke to a joint session as a young lawyer uh, by invitation to a joint session of the Utah legislature in about 74 or 75 when they were considering ratification of the amendment, and we actually anticipated that we had the votes for ratification in the Utah legislature. The Church News came out with an editorial the week before the vote. That, as you might imagine, killed the ratification effort. Uh, and I will admit that I was, that I was um, somewhat grateful a few years later when I had the opportunity to go on the state bench that nobody remembered my speech. <laughs> what was so ironic in many ways uh, about the Equal uh, Rights Amendment from a Utah perspective is that Utah's Constitution has had an equal rights provision since 1895. It's in the original Constitution. It had not been significantly litigated. There was only one case and the Utah Supreme Court had essentially refused to follow it. There used to be a road tax, and only men had to pay the road tax. Women were exempt, and a man challenged it under the state equal rights provision. And the court said, no, 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 that's not what it means. Uh, nonetheless, it was there, and it hadn't exactly changed the world. But there were, there were great concerns about what the National Amendment would do. However, um, the legislature, in voting against ratification, made a lot of promises about saying, oh, we can do this legislatively. We don't need to amend the federal constitution. We can take care of gender discrimination legislatively. So a group of us went back to them, we had a woman in the legislature, got some money and did a, a um, joint task force on statute, gender discrimination in the Utah statutes. And this was before Google, this was before computers, this was before word search. We actually, we hired uh, a young lawyer, John Mehmet, who later became a judge, from Arizona to come in and go through the Utah statutes from beginning to end and identify every instance in which there was gender discrimination. You would be amazed how, how, at how many there were. For example, um, judges' pensions. The statutes provided that the wife of a deceased judge would receive a percentage of 
deceased retired judge would receive a percentage of that judge's pension. But that the husband, it actually contemplated female judges, that was something, but that the husband of a deceased judge would have to show need in order to get the pension. <laughs> so, I mean, just, you know, that was the way the world was. But once again, that was uh, very revealing to me about the, the degree in which gender inequality pervaded, pervaded um, the, the underpinnings of our institutions. I had the enormous privilege, and as I look back on it, I had, I had no business even applying, but the stars aligned, and I uh, became the first woman ever appointed to the general jurisdiction trial bench in Utah. Uh, I, I wasn't even very long out of law school, uh, but Governor Scott Matheson, who was uh, at that time the governor, was willing to take a chance on me and appointed me to the bench. A year later, I received an invitation from two trial court judges in Los Angeles who had determined that, that the time had come to bring um, as many women judges as they could find from around the country to a little conference in uh, California, in Brentwood actually, to talk about the problems that we encountered in our positions and so on. We were probably, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but when, when I graduated from law school, women constituted fewer, less than 2% of practicing lawyers in the United States. So 98% of the profession was male, 2% was female. And um, in 1979, when we had this, this meeting in Los Angeles, I would say, that's probably about where the judicial population was, somewhere around 5% on the federal and state courts. And so uh, we, we met together, we decided we would organize and uh, devote ourselves to issues affecting gender equality and gender bias in the law, but particularly in the courts. And that organization was the National Association of Women Judges, which all these years later is still going strong. We've worked on issues like getting women appointed to the bench, uh, doing reviews of, of the degree to which there are gender implications in much of our law, as you might imagine, areas like family law uh, and probate and other kinds of law where gender is sort of directly relevant were greatly influenced by gender associations and expectations, but all kinds of other things. I mean, the ways in which um, juries were chosen, women were excluded from juries in many states in the United States well into the um, 80s. Uh, wit witnesses, women lawyers, I mean, it, it, it was endemic and we devoted ourselves to trying to deal with those problems. Now, one of the things that we did was to get deeply engaged in education, judicial education, trying to figure out how to educate our judges and the leaders of our courts to perceive these problems and to do something about it. And I spent a lot of years uh, teaching in um, gender equality arenas, and then later, of course, as mem minority members of the profession began to identify and advance their interests, we sort of added that on. And we thought, we thought at the time that all you had to do was to give people the information, to tell them what was happening out there, to help them recognize it, 
to acknowledge what basic principles of fairness were and that things would change. Does that not sound logical to you? Well, it turns out that that's not how it works. I just, uh, if any of you are New Yorker fans, Elizabeth, I don't know if she says it, Colbert, has a wonderful book review in the last issue on three books that uh, deal with the recent research on how we form opinions and how we change our minds. And it turns out that it is not based on logic and information, <laughs> that there are hugely influential factors in the way we come to our conclusions about the way the world is. And that simply telling somebody what the facts are is not necessarily going to help them change their minds. In fact, it may even make it more difficult for them to change their minds because you've now highlighted the, the sort of cognitive dissonance in the facts you're trying to uh, explain and the ones that they believe to be true. So uh, that, that was, um, that was kind of discouraging to me. I have to say after 20 years or so of working on, on equality issues in the courts and in the law, it struck me, and yes, we've, we've made enormous progress. There are, there are a lot more women in the legal profession. There are a lot more women on the bench. There's a lot more conversation and talk about inclusion and diversity, both with respect to gender uh, and ethnicity and race. But we still have, well, just, just on those things alone, women are... It, I don't know what the numbers are in California. Do you know what the percentage of women in the bar in California is? No, but the current the current classes that are coming out, I think, are more women than men. That's true, but that has been true for almost 15 years now. Yeah. The pipeline, we that's what we thought. We thought in the early days that once you got women into law school and got them coming out of law school, that these problems would solve themselves. And, and then people started doing the research on how many women ended up in senior positions in the practice of law and how many women ended up in power positions in corporations and on the bench. And th there, was, uh, there was a big fall off. And there is still a significant fall off, even though women nationally, I think, comprise well over 40% of the legal profession. If you look at the numbers of women who um, our partners, equity partners in law firms, that's a big power position. Uh, for those of you who aren't lawyers, those are the people who run the firms and, and make lots of money. Uh, even though the f most of those firms hire equal numbers of female and male associates, the young ones coming in, it's only about 20 to 22 percent of women at the top. And on the state and federal bench, it's only about 25, 20 8%. I haven't seen the most recent numbers. Maybe you have, Claudia. We're still ahead on, in the juvenile court, but behind in the district court. Right, and the average, I think, is in, in our state, which is typical around the country, is about, I think, about 25%. So there's this fall-off that nobody uh, could figure out. And then, and then on the racial and ethnic uh, side, there was also a lot of really unexplained data. You had all these laws mandating 
equal treatment and equal opportunity, and you still didn't see the economic improvement, you still didn't see the improvements in employment and housing and credit uh, that you would expect to see all other things being equal. And that's when uh, a, a really, I think, important arena of human research and decision making uh, really got started. And I, I mentioned some of the results on, on decision making. But there, it turns out that our brain processes, and I had a piece of paper with this number on it, which I left in my hotel room humongous numbers of bits of information. <laughs> every, every day, you break it down by minute, every minute we are processing enormous quantities of information. And we are constantly making judgments about how to sort that information and how to make decisions and judgments based on the way we sort it. Well, how do we do that? Do you get up every morning and stop to think, you know, is the floor really there? Is it solid? Is the sun gonna come up today? No, you don't. You make assumptions that the floor is solid between beneath your feet. You make assumptions that the sun will come up every day. You make endless assumptions about the way the world operates. It turns out we do that for everything. And we make endless assumptions about people uh, based on all kinds of information that may be relevant and may not be relevant. Uh, the, the researcher in this area started out being called in research into implicit bias. And this was, this was meant by the scientists not as bias. I'll tell you, you start talking to judges about bias, implicit or otherwise, and they are not friendly. <laughs> that is not how judges identify themselves as biased people. Uh, and so it was, it was always very hard to explain when, when I would be trying to teach these things and talk about these things to people that it's not bias in the sense of wanting to do someone harm, wanting to do a negative thing, having an invidious intention to harm someone or to hurt someone or to do someone in. It's simply, you know, right-handers have a bias for picking up their, their orange juice with their right hands and left-handers are biased towards left-handed drinking of orange juice. In other words, it's what our predilections are. Uh, and when you think about the societies that, particularly people of you know, my generation, it, it may be changing, but think about the world that we've grown up in and the signals that we have been receiving since we were children, since we were infants, about the way the world is and what to expect. And I, I have many personal examples of this. One that I remember is we were on a trip a year or two ago, we were actually up in Santa Monica and we were uh, walking somewhere across, it was a crowded, it was an overpass and it was kind of a, uh, wasn't a great area of town, it wasn't, wasn't, didn't look dangerous or anything, but a young black man came over the bridge towards us. He had a hoodie on and his head down and I immediately felt myself just go on alert. And as he approached us and got close to us, he looked up, he flashed us this big, beautiful smile and said, hello, how are you today? And I smiled back and I said, we're fine. And, but, but it was just shocking to me 
how his response to me was not what I was assuming would happen. Um, I was making assumptions because he was wearing a hoodie, because, you know, he was alone on the bridge, because he was black. I don't know. It was a set of circumstances that generated some discomfort in me. And that happens to all of us all the time. And the research that they've done, I usually, when I talk about this, I tell everyone about a series of tests devised um, at Harvard called um, IET. Uh, implicit implicit added, it's no, it's a pl implicit associational test. And uh, they were designed to help us measure the degree to which we associate things with each other. And the story I've, I've been telling for a couple of years now is about taking the one on gender and employment. There's a test which measures one of their, they, they have them on race, ethnicity, age, um, fat, fatness, thinness, uh, you know, a whole series, guns, a whole series of things. And what they measure uh, or purport to measure is the degree to which you associate things with each other. So the one on gender and employment measures the degree to which you, you associate one gender or the other with either family slash private work or paid employment on the other side. And when I took that test, I was shocked because I, I've been working on gender equality all my life. I consider myself a feminist. And the test results came back showing that I was moderately biased in favor of associating women with uh, private employment and men with paid employment. And I've worked my whole life. I mean, I've been working since I was in high school. And I was really shocked. Now, the only problem I have now with the implicit associational test is that George just told me that in his latest Harvard magazine, there's a whole article about these IAT. I've been telling everybody to go online and take the IAT, and I still recommend it because it's an interesting experience. Uh, you just, just Google IAT Harvard, and it'll take you in, and you can take them. They're free, and they, they take maybe half an hour to take. But unfortunately, this article in the most recent issue of the Harvard Magazine suggests that the tests are not well calibrated to, to get reliable individual results. They still, as a, an experimental model, they still work, but for apparently, group data, yeah. yeah, for yes, for group data they still work, but they may not be as reliable. So maybe you want to read the Harvard Magazine article before you take the test. <laughs> uh, but but they do not undercut the notion of implicit associational biases. Uh, and that, that research is very far-reaching. And what it means, for example, they, they've done studies, for example, where they will um, ask school teachers to grade papers or exams. And they will, in a control study, put names that are obviously black names. Know, Dre on one paper and John on another. Uh, or they'll do female and male names. And, it, and they, it will be the identical information and the response of the graders will be different. And blacks, as you might imagine, will do more poorly than whites and women will do more poorly than men. Uh, they've done these studies in every arena you can imagine. I was just at a seminar talking about um, 
issues associated with artificial intelligence and the algorithms that we're designing to do things like review credit applications. The problem is that some of the demographic information that are, that are going into the software and these algorithms actually bring in the demographic associations that create inequality in the first place. And so you see, you see poor people, black people, other minorities having to pay higher interest for the same loans and the same level of risk. So the, the reason I like to talk to people about this problem is that we like to think of ourselves as fair, fair human beings. That's why it's so hard to suggest to judges that they're biased, because that's a judge's job, is to be fair. Uh, but, but it's very important to realize that, and it's why they call it implicit, we don't always know what kind of associations we are making that are leading to decisions. Uh, that we're entering into. And the, the other, one of the things that the research shows, some of the good news is that actually our associations are at least to some degree malleable. You can actually pull back on your associations and change them to the degree that they are unfair or unsubstantiated by facts and reality. And the way in which you do that is by stopping and examining your work. They're doing a lot of work with trial judges uh, in this arena because th the implicit associations can have huge impact on sentencing decisions. Um, if judges are unbeknownst even to themselves making assumption about, assumptions about certain types of people, certain types of background, certain races and ethnicity, uh, certain community associations, that get fed unconsciously into the sentencing decisions, it can go a long way to explain what we see at the outcome level of really significant disparities in sentencing. If you look across the criminal justice system in this country, you see minorities uh, experiencing much more severe sentencing, even where all other factors, objectively speaking, are equal. And so the work that they are doing with trial judges in this area of implicit, I'm trying to call it implicit associations instead of implicit bias. That, I think that's the new buzzword. But what they're doing is asking judges to keep book on themselves, to actually keep track of all of the circumstances surrounding their sentencing decisions and the outcomes of their sentencing decisions. And to do that over a period of time so they can identify patterns that are emerging from that data. And then they're asking the judges to try to figure out what's, what's leading to those patterns, what are the associations they're relying on that causes those patterns to exist. And then they're asking the judges to slow down. To slow down in the sentencing process, identify the potential for implicit associations and implicit bias and think very consciously about how to avoid it, how to equalize their decision making. Um, it, it's having some really dramatic results and it's very encouraging to people like me who spent all these decades trying to figure out why, after all the work we've invested in inequality and equal opportunity, why we still live in a society that is so rife with 
lack of equality and lack of opportunity. And uh, I think that this research and this work holds, holds a lot of promise for us. So I've probably said enough by way of introduction. I'd, be, I'd like to open it up for questions and comments, and I'd be happy to talk to you about any aspect of what I've talked about, you know, my, my history and my interest, or this question of uh, implicit associations. Have at it. Yes? More or less on a personal note, I guess. Both of you are undergraduate when you get married, and then somehow you manage together to go to North Carolina. Yes. How would you have worked that out? <laughs> I told you, if there was a harder way to do it, we'd find it. Um, we were extremely fortunate. I, I was employed from my first year out of college while George was still at Harvard, and then started, year the, started law school the second year. I saved up as much money as I could. George um, was admitted into a program at the medical school at Duke that provided him with pretty substantial support, and I got student loans which, frankly, in those days, not like the student loans of today. I mean, my, my student loans were three, at 3% interest. I had actually gone on the bench before I finished paying off my student loans because the interest rate was so low and the payments were so low. It was a no-brainer to do that. So we relied on, um, we lived in student communities. We actually relied on some wonderful people in our LDS student ward down in Durham, North Carolina to help with the babysitting. We had, our kids had some pretty fancy babysitters, let me tell you. Um, and we just, we just did it. We also, you know, we, it's, we made sacrifices. Uh, they were easy to make because they were necessary, but for example, I was invited to join law review at Duke Law School. Um, but we had a one-year-old at home, and he was a first-year medical student, and I just didn't see where I was going to get the 25, 30 hours a week that they told me law review would take. So I said no. So I didn't do law review. Yeah. But, so you both applied to multiple places, and then when you were both accepted to basically North Carolina, that's... Actually, actually, it was a little, a little weirder than that. George was applying to multiple places. Um, he got into UCSD, and then he got into the MD-PhD program at, at Duke and got the money. And so we went down to, for him to interview for that. Actually, I don't think you were in. I think you were just going down to interview. Mm -hmm. um, and this was in the fall, shortly after our first child had been born. She was like three or four months old. So we piled her in the car. We drove from Boston down to Durham, North Carolina. And while he was over interviewing at the medical school, didn't have a babysitter, so I took the baby over to the law school. <laughs> Called up, made an appointment with the dean of admissions, took the baby over to the law school, sat down with the dean of admissions. And this is a funny story because um, I'm sitting in his office. I'm explaining to him. I've, we've left out parts of the story because yeah. most people don't want it. It's too much information. but. Um, George actually, as I mentioned earlier, finished early at Harvard, and at the time, and we went out to Arizona that last semester. So I'd done one semester of law school at Boston College. Then we moved to Arizona to live with his parents. He had a job teaching at a junior college out there before medical school the following year. So I did my second semester 
of my first year of law school at Arizona State University. Brand new law school. Now it had been founded by my father-in-law, uh, and so I didn't have any trouble getting in. And so I, I'm the only person I've ever met who went to three law schools, uh, and two of them in the first year. But so when he went down to interview in the fall, I went into the admissions office at Duke and I said, okay, I'm at Boston College now, and it looks like we're probably gonna be going out to Arizona for the second semester, and I'll be able to do my second semester at Arizona. And the, the dean sort of, and I had, you know, I had my numbers, my LSATs and my, and my GPAs and so on. And so the dean looked at me and said, well, he said, you know, Boston College is a, is a quite well-established institution. Arizona State's brand new, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, but let me think about it and see what I can do. And I, I kept noticing behind his desk he had a picture of his family. So it's this young couple with like six children. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that looks like a Mormon family. <laughs> Turned out to be Tom Reed. If any of you ever, if you move in academic circles, you'd know Tom Reed. He was dean at Hastings. He's, he was later dean at University of Florida Gainesville. University of Florida Gainesville. He was then an assistant uh, dean at Duke, a young guy. But it turned out that I did I did well at BC. That's another story. The <laughs> this is this is a very personal story. But so this is the summer um, before George's senior year of law school. It, it was at Harvard. It was all balled up because. He needed to, he, there was a course in biochem he needed before he could graduate, and it was only given in the spring. And so I was stuck in Boston for another year. They fired me from my teaching job. I taught at a junior college, the year out of college, but they fired me because I got pregnant. Um, so here I am, I'm pregnant. We were out in Arizona for the summer. I'm very depressed uh, because it's going to be another year before I can get to law school and so on. And George says, let's, let's just go over to ASU and... and and look at the ABA book. So we go over to the ABA book. Oh, and I had been, I had applied to Harvard Law School um, when I was a, at Wellesley, uh, but was not accepted. Now, Harvard in that era had a 10% quota, if you'll recall. And I know this. I thought it, it was 5%. It might have been 5%. <laughs> but, you know, George's roommate at Harvard, whose LSAT was lower than mine and whose GPA was lower than mine, got in. But, I, you know, I didn't think much of it. I thought, oh, okay, I'm not going to Harvard. So we looked up and, and there was Boston College and Boston University. And we're out in Arizona and I'm pregnant. And um, I just sat down and wrote letters to BU and BC saying, here I am, I'd like to come to your law school this fall. Do you have a place? And Boston University wrote me back a nice letter saying if you can verify because I didn't even have my transcripts with me and everything. They said, if you can verify your scores, we'll have a place for you. Father Robert F. Drynan, do any of you remember him? Who was a Catholic priest who subsequently went to the U U.S. House of Representatives until the Pope told him he had to quit. It was a big civil rights lawyer and so on. He was dean at Boston College. He called me in Arizona and said, there's more to this story. My father was being sent to Vietnam and my mother was going to come up and take care of the baby. I don't know. He called me up and he said, come to our law school. We bring your mother, bring the baby. We'd love to have you. He called me personally. And um, the kicker was that Boston University started classes on September 1st. 
Boston College started class on September 15th. The baby was due to be born in Arizona on August 30th. <laughs> she actually came on the 31st, and we made it back a day late. <laughs> I started law school one day late. I was sure the rest of the year that somebody had said something that first day that made it all made, make sense, right? You remember that first year of law school. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're doing. So anyway, I'm at Duke, and um, he says, well, this is a little unorthodox, but, you know, if you do, if you do well at ASU. Uh, so I did do well at ASU, and Duke offered me a place and money and offered George a place and money, and so that's how we got to Duke. And Duke was a wonderful place for us. Durham, North Carolina was a great place to live, and we had a little Tar Heel a year later, so... We were very happy to be there. Didn't bother you that you were at the alma mater of Richard Nixon? I did a little bit, yeah. It, although it made life interesting. Um, when I first got to the law school, they had his his uh, annual contribution check up on the bulletin board in the lobby. And then after the Tet Offensive in no, the Cambodian bombing. The Cambodian bombing. I'm sorry. Uh, they not only removed his check, but they took his portrait out of the courtroom and hid it somewhere in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were interesting times. Yes. Yeah, I, it's, it's it's not very PC, but but I, I did have a couple of a couple of questions. Um, one, my sense of feminism as it is viewed today, uh, particularly by the younger quote unquote feminists and maybe some of the older more strident ones. And, and I say that as someone who came up through feminism and right. was not unaware of the obstacles that women face, right. um, is that it's different. And that the fact that it, it also seems to me, you know, I'm, I'm both astonished and appalled that women can consider themselves feminists today and have Sharia backers. Those two things bother me. I'm sorry, have Sharia, Sharia. Sharia law. Law, Islamic, Islamic okay. law backers. Okay. I, I have significant issues with that because they seem to me totally incompatible mm -hmm. from the original wellsprings of feminist doctrine. Yeah, feminism, like most other isms, has a long history and many iterations. And I suppose those of us who call ourselves feminists probably define it for ourselves. Um, I share your concerns, although I think it's that that's, those are very difficult concerns for Mormon women, because we also live in a religious regime which differentiates between the genders, the sexes, in terms of religious privilege and religious privileges. So it's, it's kind of hard for us to argue with, I mean, it, well, ours, is, ours aren't nearly as bad. I mean, they, they really re relegate women to, to second-class status. I can't think of any place Mormon women are being sold. It's one of the basic issues with, with some of the radical views, even in radical Mormon Yes, women, but I don't know of any feminists who think that aspects of Sharia... I, I know of none. There may be some, but who think that Sharia law, to the extent that it permits the selling of women, is is a feminist, is compatible with a feminist um, worldview. Do you know some? Because um, <laughs> well, like you, I don't, I don't see how that could be. Some of the, yes, there were some, in, in this most recent supposed women's march, there were women who were backed by um, 
more radical Islamic doctrine who were who yeah. both organized it and participated. So I have my concern is the perception that somehow that somehow is well and it's I'm, adequate I, as a yeah as well a and uh, you know judges are show me people. The first yeah. thing the first thing I right. want to know is you know. Who's doing what? Where's the money coming from? What are the actual doc doctrinal things? And of course, again, you see you see versions of feminism on the left as well as the right, as I would consider uh, Sharia law to be, which do not which which contain convictions that I don't embrace, that are not part of my worldview, um, my mm -hmm. own definition, and what I've worked for all of my life is along the lines of equal opportunity, equal right. treatment under the law, right. uh, and the, the ability to control one's destiny in the same way that any other human being uh, can do. So, that, right. yeah, I think that's... Right. But I, I wouldn't disagree with you that, that lots of people who would call themselves feminists would be people I wouldn't agree on okay. some things with. And one other quick um, observation. And, and you know, you said you, you had been, you had lived in LA, and um, I, I would be, not that it's exactly the same, uh, same time period, but um, uh, having lived in cities where you're, right. where you see a, a large mixture of people, if you right. will, um, I think that that if you're, if you're. If you looked at the at, at the Watts riots, or if you looked at recent things, that if somebody's coming down the street to you and wearing a hoodie, um, it could be it, you might you might actually be a little more on track to be thoughtful about where you were walking and who you were with. And, right. And right. And, that's and, that's where stereotypes come from. Right. Stereotypes come from experience that validates them. Right. But it doesn't make them always right. valid. Exactly. My, that's the problem. I have a friend who has a son who is black. Right. And oh. she described to me how difficult it was for her when he was down in yes. Chapel Hill, and she had to say to him, now make sure when you go out more running in the morning, because he was a runner, make sure, you know, that you're, that you're you know, you're dressed, you're, you're not always I know, the, the life of someone yeah. with, with um, a, a black, especially boy. Yes. Uh, if you haven't read Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, book, Letter to My Son, that that immerses you in that experience because of the it, he's you know he's a black writer and scholar and he's yes. he's trying to explain to his sons the world that they live in and the expectations and implicit assumptions that people will make about him. I have a a, a grandson of color. He's um, he's Latino. He's from Guatemala. And um, so he's growing up as a brown boy in a world which right now is, uh, it's, it's changing in terms of the way, you know, I mean, he's, he, and he's doing fine. I mean, the kid has so, so much charm <laughs> that I think he's going to emerge really well. But Utah's a pretty white bread place, and the neighborhood he lives in is a very white bread place. And, He's already had, and this wasn't wasn't said in a bullying way or uh, a mean way. But one of his classmates said, "said Well, you better bring your passport with you when you come to school, so they won't take you and send you away." So you know, he's he's already at age ten, 
aware that people make assumptions about him and his life. And again, I guess all we can plead for and work on as individuals is this ability to stop and think and try to unpack what our assumptions are. Now, I agree with you completely. There are parts of town and times of day and places in this country where you better be careful where you're walking and who's walking uh, behind you and close to you. But you all, we also should be ready, I think, to be surprised um, and to keep ourselves safe, but to also be surprised by the goodness in other people and the, having our, our assumptions and expectations dashed in a good way. I have another kind of personal question. I'm curious about the experiences you and perhaps your husband had taking a non-traditional kind of family path yes. in Salt Lake, the center of a yes. conservative religion when women weren't. Yeah, we were we were somewhat launched because we'd been married, well, what have we been married? Seven years when we moved to Utah? Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, we'd been in, and we'd been in Boston where we were weird and we were in Durham where we were weird. Um, <laughs> I was telling somebody tonight about a lawyer, a lawyer and law professor whom you would all know who said to me in law school, a Mormon, who said, well, it really doesn't matter how you do in law school. You're, you, know, you don't really need to do anything with your, with your career because... And I had other men, usually Mormon men, who said to me, you're taking up a seat that a man needs to support his family. Um, so it was, it, it was a thing. The truth is we were astonishingly confident, and this is the part where we look back and say, what were we thinking? Because we were just astonishingly confident that we were making the choices that would work for us and that we could do it. Again, we had no basis whatsoever for that assumption. Um, my trick was marrying an incredibly nurturing, supportive, I mean, I dated, I dated a lot of Mormon men, and he was the first one that I met who didn't think I was nuts, who, who, who when I said I want a career and I want more education, said, great, <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, and he also was willing to make compromises in his schedule and his career to make sure that, that we got, we used to, we traded off. I worked part-time for a number of years, then he worked part-time for a number of years, and then we both worked full-time with a nanny and you know we we did all kinds of of permutations to get it done uh, and there were a lot of people who were disapproving when I first moved to Utah I was really worried I remember I went to a Relief Society program this was in the early 70s and we had a skit about bra burning liberals and how terrible they were bra burning women and you know the equal rights movement was heating up and so on I thought oh I don't feel very comfortable here and then I went up Gloria Steinem was speaking at the University of Utah I went up to hear her speak and attended a small question and answer period afterwards with just a number of people sitting in a smallish venue and, and, and a, a number there undertook the project of educating her on the local culture. <laughs> and I, oh, I don't feel very comfortable here either. <laughs> so so I've, I've, it, it was hard for me to, to find um, people who were like me, but, but we did. I mean, we started a little dinner group that's still meeting after how many years now yeah. of dual career families. And in fact, my son, our son ended up marrying the daughter of two of our good friends. He's an architect and she's a very 
well-known, pathologist. accomplished pathologists and electron microscopists. So, so, another one of our family mottos was that we would rather flunk out of our careers than flunk out of our marriage or family. That's nice. Yeah, hard to stick to. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the Utah Supreme Court. What were your years on the court? How many justices are on the court? And did you have, uh, did, were there opinions issued on gender bias that changed Utah law, whether statute or case law, um, on the subject of gender bias? Yeah, our court is a very small court, like, like many, especially small western states, five justices. Um, I didn't mention this, but both on the trial bench when I went on and on the Supreme Court to a lesser extent, some of my colleagues weren't thrilled to see me. <laughs> um, you know, as the first woman, I was young, I wasn't from Utah, um, you know, so that was a little bit difficult, although I did have some wonderful colleagues. I served on this Utah Supreme Court with Dallin Oaks for two years I wondered about uh, that. before he left, yeah. and he, he was just a, a wonderful colleague. He briefly joined the National Association of Women. That's true, he did. We had, we had a conference in Utah and he joined up and came to our conference. Yes, I did have, a, I did particularly, I think I had quite an influence on the court in the arena of family law. In, in this era, our Intermediate Court of Appeals does most of the family law cases, but in that era we didn't have an Intermediate Court and we did a lot of the family law cases. and. You know, women used to get a very raw deal in divorce, and particularly women who had devoted their lives and careers to supporting their husbands' careers, and who in the division of assets and income often saw no, no compensation for that loss of education and loss of work experience. And so I wrote a number of opinions um, that have since been relied on uh, to equalize that situation. Uh, and I did have a couple of opportunities to, to actually try to remember what the issue was. We, ha we actually had an issue that, that where we cited the state con equal rights provision, uh, provision in the Constitution Put and struck down, and struck down um, a gender bias issue. You know, and the other, I, I remember one discussion I was a dissent on the opinion, and I'm not sure that that I was right and they were wrong. It was a very difficult question, but I had a different perspective on it. It was a, it was uh, someone who was trying to establish a cause of action for wrongful life. It was a woman the the woman had schizophrenia, and um, her husband had a vasectomy because for that for her to get pregnant would mean she'd have to go off her medication and that would be very damaging to her. Her husband had a vasectomy. The vasectomy failed, uh, and the lawsuit was for malpractice in the fa failed vasectomy, and the damage was a child who was born, and she had been quite damaged by the pregnancy and her disease, and in fact was really not, not uh, fit particularly to raise the child. the child. The child's life was an enormous burden to her. And my colleagues gave that case at the time fairly short shrift. They said there's no universe in which the birth of a healthy child can be a tort, can be a wrong. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you 
you know, the birth of a child, yes, it's 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 beautiful and it's a and it's a gift, but it can be a burden. It can be a terrific burden. And it may be a burden for which in some circumstances compensation ought to arise. I lost that one, but I don't think that perspective in our discussion would even have arisen had I not been a mother. Now they were all fathers, but I don't think they had a perspective on what a mother's life is like. You've played a role in paternity rights too. Oh, that's true, yeah, that's true. We, ha we have a lot of gender discrimination in, um, in uh, with respect to children born out of, outside of marriage. And um, our court has actually done quite a bit to improve the access to, to due process and notice to putative fathers. Uh, you know, mother, mothers get an automatic assumption that they're fit and they can keep the children. Fathers, first of all, if they don't affirmatively register their interest uh, within very short time frames in our state, I think California is uh, a little more expansive on that, uh, they, they, they get cut off. And even if they don't get cut off and can get notice and get into the litigation, they have to prove they're fit even though the only difference is that one's a biological father and one's a biological mother. Just one Complicated quick follow-up. When, when was your, your beginning year and, and then your final year? On, in the, on She's the, still on the court. Oh, you are? I'm still on the court, yeah. I, um, so you've been on it 30, decades, decades. Yeah, I've been on it a very long time. I went oh, on very young. Goodness. I went on in 1982. I was Chief Justice from 2002 to 2012. Then I stepped down as Chief Justice. Um, the Chief Justice in our state is the CEO of the entire judicial system. So you do a lot of budgeting, administrative planning, running the Judicial Council. It's a separate administrative job. So I, I stepped down from that job and just went back to being an Associate Justice on the court, which I've been doing. And one of the reasons I stayed is that we've had three new justices on our court in the last five years. I'll, I'll put up our court against any state Supreme Court in the country. I mean, smart, well-educated. We've got two Chicago graduates, a Harvard graduate, a Berkeley graduate, and a Duke graduate. And nice, nice people. Don't we have nice people, Claudia? Yes. But I also want to add that part of what you do as Chief Justice is politics. Oh, yes, yes. And you have to interface with the legislature. And, and I have watched you work a room, and she is a master <laughs> politician. She's great. Thank you, Claudia. So much good for us. Thank you. I appreciate that. I loved that work. I really did, and I gave my heart to it. But I have to tell you, it's been like a vacation since I stopped doing yeah. it. So, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm a Brad Muger. Yeah, Muger. M U G A R. Just like sugar with an M. Okay. My wife, Susan. Nice and to meet you. I'd like to know about um, your research and work, your, your life's work, uh, working with other forms of discrimination as well. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, it. You, you're abs no, you're absolutely right. And I think the experience of belonging to and, and having the experiences of a, of a um, well, suspect class under the Constitution and, and a group of people who, who experience different life differently because of their status, I've, I've, you know, I was deeply engaged with the civil rights movement. I actually, and in my own state, I made a big effort, particularly when I was chief, but, but still now, 
to give as much support uh, as I can to the Minority Law Association, the Minority Bar Association, to help mentor and the, the mentally ill. Well, we have, we actually have a daughter um, who has Down syndrome, and so we, we got to join that, that uh, community. advocacy community willy-nilly, uh, but that, of course, I mean, it, it just, you know, having those kinds of experiences in your own life, I started by saying our experiences form who we are, and I, I think that they, that I, I tend to identify with the underdog. <laughs> Uh, for whatever reasons a person becomes an underdog, that's where my sympathies tend to lie. Now, I have to be careful in my judging capacity that I don't let that bias me in inappropriate ways. Well, in but, a follow-up, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no. it's, it's strange. Um, it worked in the reverse for my son. And, and when he was trying to uh, get hired as a fire, uh, fire department, uh -huh. his best friend was an half-part Indian. Uh -huh. His part would not get 10%. He went right in and my son right. had too much money and time had to quit trying. Yeah. I no, believe he was very capable. No, these, thi these things are very difficult, because you're right. For every person who gets the job, somebody else doesn't get the job. I, I must say I still get a little bit impatient how many American Indian firefighters had ever been part of the force. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to think about the history of things too. And so it's, and then you get into the whole law of affirmative action, what that means. But I really hear you. I, th I think it's choices get made and uh, you'd like to think that you'd like to think that there are all well I don't know I mean I t in education for example I work with law schools and uh, legal education and you know, affirmative action is a big issue for law schools and the people who support the notion of really focusing on inclusion and diversity in law schools many of them believe that, that you do so not just to give those people a chance but because of the quality of education that is produced when you have multiple voices participating in the process. And that's something we always have to think about, too. Yes, sorry. Uh, you mentioned Alan Oaks, and uh, yes. I know he's been very active, actively engaged in religious freedom. He's brought yes. it up in a lot of... Uh, is that under assault right now, in your opinion? No, this is something on which my former colleague and I disagree. <laughs> Um, and you know who's going to believe who's going who's going to take my word for it over his? But that's fine. I really and, and we had an interesting experience. We invited Brett Sharfs, who is now the director of the Center for uh, Religious International Religious Liberty at BYU at mm -hmm. BYU. It's affiliated with the law school. George's cousin Cole founded it and has run it for many years. And you know you we've been hearing so much and you read so much about this onslaught of yes. attack on religious liberty and so we invited Brett Scharfs um, to come and talk to our uh, appellate judges conference last year and to talk to us about I said I specifically really would like you to address this assertion that we hear so often and he spent a couple of hours with us and it was absolutely fascinating because the first hour he spent on international 
religious liberty and what's going on with that. And he had charts and statistics and so on. And it, it was truly alarming. I mean, the, the degree to which religious freedom and religious liberty is under attack globally. But then when he got domestically, not so much. <laughs> I mean, not the, not the lawsuits. You, you've got the... Holy Lobby. The what? The Holly Lobby. Yeah, you've got Holly, Hobby Lobby. The, right, but of course Hobby Lobby won their lawsuit. Yes. <laughs> so um, I, I, as I said before, judges are show me people, and I, I really want to see the evidence. And I know there's a lot of public discussion and a lot of discourse, and a lot of people are concerned and worried. And I hear people who feel that they, that they are not free to sort of live their religion and express their religious beliefs in the public sphere. And maybe it's because I live in Utah, but I don't see it. <laughs> you know, if you look at the church website, one of the evidences that they show for having a loss of religious freedom is that people feel afraid to express their beliefs. And that, to me, is not just, freedom. That, I mean, if you have a belief that's unpopular, you're free to express it, and people Absolutely. that don't like it are free to tell you you're full of beans. Exactly. We don't get to express our beliefs and not have them challenged. Yeah. And if that's what what religious freedom requires, I, that it's not, I, I don't agree with that. I don't. Well, think why that's, is the church so concerned about it? Well, I, I'm, I'm I am sympathetic right. to your position. I'm, and I'm not a scholar at all, but it's been brought up over and I know, over again. I know. Well, what that's, is their, what's their main concern? Well, and that's why we invited Brett, because we thought he might know <laughs> yeah. down uh, at BYU. I, I know. Um, <clears throat> what I suspect is that the global experience, the international experience that the church is having um, is very alarming to them. And, it's, and I, I do know there's enormous angst at BYU as a church-owned school about um, things like the honor code and the same-sex prohibitions uh, associated with their accreditation. But I sit on the uh, accrediting body for American law schools, and I am unaware of any attempt to undermine or attack BYU law school's accreditation. There's an exemption for, for religious schools. Now, people always cite to the old Bob Jones case. Do you remember that? Bob Jones, and this was, I think, back in the, I don't know what, the 60s, the 70s. Interracial dating. Yeah, they had a bar against interracial dating. And their, it wasn't their accreditation that was affected. It was their tax-exempt status uh, was yanked because, of the, because, because they were found to be in violation of the, anti, the Civil Rights Act, um, that it was racial mm -hmm. discrimination. But that was 30, 40 years ago, and um, so they, it's quite possible, even likely, that they know something I don't know, but I don't see it. Okay. So, Morris. I think we're kind of getting to the end of our, of our time, and I'm sure a lot of people have other questions, and I'm sure Christine will stay around and answer questions that you might have individually afterwards. I, I guess I'd like to use my privilege as the host to just fire off a couple of last ones here. Oh, sure. The first one would be, uh, do you see, we're talking about implicit bias, and uh, do you see a danger in the church 
of having everything so priesthood centric that, and this will vary from individual to individual, but that a lot of men do not see women as capable of holding leadership positions. Uh, you know, you, you just don't see it. In the ward, you've got the bishopric that is in charge of everything. You have an executive secretary who's a man, but you can have a secretary to a bishop that takes notes and types things out to women. Do you see that affecting uh, how, how people feel about women? Well, we, we all, again, you know, I, I experienced the church through my ward um, congregation and, and through living in Salt Lake City, and that's probably different in many respects from the church that you, that you experienced through your congregations and so on. And I do think, I, I do give the church credit for trying. Um, I think, uh, I know in, in our ward, for example, our bishop, we have, an, I think a somewhat unusual bishop, but he includes all of the heads of the, all of the auxiliaries uh, on the ward council. They speak, etc. cetera. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that's church-wide, and I don't know why they don't just tell the bishops to do that church-wide. I think it is. Is it? Are they? Oh, well, you would know. All right. So, so they are trying. Um, in our son's stake in Seattle, the stake president on High Council Sunday always has an auxiliary leader go with the High Council person. To the wards and So you may have visit. the Relief Society stake first counselor and the High Council be the speakers. Of so I think there's a real effort to, to, to put women into more visible, to, to make more visible their leadership responsibilities. Because we all know women are running the church, right? <laughs> you want something done. But um, I do think there, there's a need to overcome a long, long time of association between men in leadership and women with no leadership. And I think it's going to take us a long time to overcome that. I, last year, um, our bishop invited the Relief Society president to sit on the stand in sacrament meeting. Um, as because as a leader, as a leader of the because his counselors were gone, as a leader of the ward, and it happened to be fast and testimony meeting. I could have strangled her, the dear woman. She got up and said, "I'm just so nervous about being up on the stand with all the <laughs> men," and I'm just going, "Karma, you just set us back <laughs> 15 years." Uh, so, so you know those, but but she's been imbibing you know, decades of expectations about women and what they should and, and should not do. So I think, yes, there's absolutely a tendency. I, I've joked with George for years. I hope this isn't talking out of school, but, you know, when you go to the temple and you're assembled in the waiting room and so on, I would see lawyers all the time who at a bar function would be fawning all over me. But in the waiting room at the temple, their eyes slide right by. Mm -hmm. They see the men in the room, but they don't see the women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's 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 well, we, just we, a difference in venue. Maury, I'm on the admissions committee at the medical school. Our dean of admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine refers to women applying to medical school from BYU as unicorns, mm -hmm. as being extraordinarily. Did rare. you hear that? These are George is on the admissions committee for the medical school at the U University of Utah, and the chair of that committee. Talks to talks about describes female applicants from BYU, so Mormon women applicants as unicorns because they are so rare. 
I mean, they just, and they're just as smart, and they're just as able, and they'll go to nursing school for just as much work and money, uh, but without the same uh, responsibility and rewards. So, I, I, I guess I feel like it's it's changing in the sense that more and more young women are going into the workplace where they're accepted more and more on an equal footing, and so they're, they're starting not afraid. to expect that. Right. And, and more, and I think another thing is the increased number of women going on missions. Yes. Uh, who come back with the confidence that a return missionary has and their ability to speak and to right. lead. Uh, but you know, I remember from being young when, for example, if a if a man in the family died or there was a divorce, how the bishop would take, you know, a young man ordained to be a deacon at age twelve and explain Tell to him with his mother, "You are now in charge of the, the family." You know, and how does the mother feel when that happens? Yeah. And so I think we've got a maybe a ways, a ways to, go. to go. No, I think we have have a long way to go. But I do think I do think the leaders of the church are trying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's again. Our experience affects us so so strongly. You think about where those leaders have come from for mm-hmm. generations, and where some of the leaders now come from, and you see differences in their worldviews as a as a consequence. Just just a quick poll of people here. We have a lot of committees in the church. Okay, that some of them are ad hoc committees, or they're not necessarily priesthood committees. At least I've never considered yeah. them to be. Uh, but how many times is the committee head a man, and as you say frequently, the ones that do the work are women? Uh, have you ever seen a woman preside over a man in any respect in the church? Primary. I'm sure it happens. In the primary. Well, that's one. That's one. When I was state public affairs director 25 years ago, it was mostly being run by women in Orange County because the church hadn't figured out it was. A high priority, and it was really cool. Kit Pool, I don't think you heard from Tustin, was like running public affairs. Mm-hmm. And now I've been in it again, and now it's very much it's a bunch of ex state presidents that right. it's uh, very priesthood oriented, the women are subservient. So it flipped the other way. Over Interesting. Time. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the correlation had Brigham Young also did not give short trip to women. He sent some of the first women doctors. That's true. Right? To, I mean, this, was, this is perhaps a newer well, it, it happened in the. It happened. A, a lot of it happened in the post-war, post-post-World War II. You had a. I mean, you had you had Susie Young Gates and and Emily the B. suffragists Wells. and Emmeline B. Wells. It's a very strong generation of Mormon feminists. And then things happened in the whole country, and the church was seeking recognition and mainstream status, and things changed. Okay, Descri- Rob wants one more, and yeah. since he's you know he's a lawyer, Des- we can't Des- possibly deny Descri- that. Describe, describe for us your political skills, and and that's a serious question. Right. What are your because I can tell that you have them, but tell us about it. Well, um, I was appointed by the last sitting Democratic governor in the state of Utah, and I I think I'm pretty generally viewed. I've heard myself described as the most liberal member of the Utah Supreme Court. Uh, so I had a bit of a disability in, when I was chief in dealing with um, the all-Republican Utah legislature. Uh, but, w- but what I found was that they, they uh, appreciated attention and respect, to listen to them, uh, and, and to respect their role, even if you didn't necessarily agree with, agree with them or think they were very respectable sometimes. Uh, 
one of the things that I think actually was a detriment to me, and, and looking back, I'd, I'd probably do some things differently. I think I was still very much in the mode of thinking, if you just explained things to people carefully and gave them all the information, they would change their minds. And I, I wish, looking back in my life as a whole, that I'd been a little bit more sensitive to the degree to which um, I was really asking people to do things that were hard. Uh, and I think that actually about my work in, in um, with minorities and gender equality, uh, I remember being at a bar breakfast one time and the women lawyers were feeling their oats. We'd organized, uh, founded this group, we invited the bar commission because there'd never been a woman on the bar commission. And they were still going to the Alta Club which wouldn't let women join. And so we invited the bar president, the bar commission, the breakfast. I remember he got up and he said, he said, first he said, you know, I love my wife and my daughters. Well, that was that was strike one, and strike two was when people didn't respond too well to that. He said, he said, I don't understand. What is it you ladies want? And and I just at the time I was just I just thought you are so clueless. You don't begin to get what this is all about. And I look back now and I realize that those men in that position, they had been running the world, that little world. They'd been running the bar, they'd been running the legal profession, they'd been running the firms, they made all the money, they were the wheelers and dealers in the community. And what they perceived us to be is people who wanted to take at least a piece of that away from them. They wanted, they realized we wanted to share the pie and they saw that as loss. And I think so often when we are asking people to change, and I think this is true in the church, very much so. I think that what it feels like to the people who are being asked to change is loss. And that those of us who are pro-change and think things have to change have to be a little bit sensitive to the pain that that is causing them. And it's hard. It's really hard to do. But it's what I tried to do when I was dealing with legislators who I know didn't agree with me. I had a fabulous team. I mean, they set me up to succeed uh, in terms of the quality of our budgeting and our numbers and our communication and our transparency. It was easy for me to go out and be the figurehead of the state courts. So I, but I think it's listening to people. It's it's being willing to engage with them and find out about their kids and their families and their resources and their needs. Um, and I, I hope I mostly succeeded. We had some, we had some good years. We came through the Great Recession without, without <coughs> dying, which was really good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.